Hey, good morning, folks. How are you, Longview Point? Good to see everybody. It's good to be able to be together, together as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I hope you and yours are healthy and whole and all is well. So this morning, uh, Ben Ivey is leading our song service uh, for two reasons. One, because he does a very good job with it. And, and two, because John Ginn, who has been filling in for us in the absence of a worship pastor, tested positive for COVID-19 this past week. So he's not with us. Now, I think the word on that has sort of, to some extent, been out. And I think there was an assumption on the part of some that we might not have a service here today as a result of that. We, a few things, and just bear with me and understand these are heavy decisions, and I get concerns and positions on, in a variety of places. But th we, we cannot and we won't shut down for every positive case that, that comes up in the life of our church. We're just not going to do that, and, and we, we, feasibly we cannot. It's not reasonable to think that we can. What we are going to do is what we have done in the past week, which was to send out an email and make people aware who were in close proximity to John in last week's song service or in any other kind of uh, ministry setting. And we're, we're, we'll quarantine him for the next, uh, he won't be back with us the next Sunday. It's a 14-day quarantine, which, which I hate. He's fine. wanted you to know that, that he's fine. He said if it, if it weren't for infecting people, I'd be leading worship on Sunday. And this was uh, middle of the week this past week. So... Uh, he's doing well, no major issues there, but for COVID-19, he said, I would have assumed it was seasonal allergies and everything would have been fine. But he'll be out for this Sunday and for next Sunday, and Ben will graciously be back with us on next Sunday. Uh, but I wanted you to be aware of that, and I want you to understand how we're handling that. I certainly don't ever want to do anything that puts you in, in a compromised position um, I, I want you to understand that anytime that you go to church or you go to Walmart or the grocery store, that there's a certain degree of risk that you're assuming when you make this, the decision to do that. The only modification that we have made um, is we're encouraging masks in that 815 service, which is a decision that really, I think, was perhaps all but made even before this. And I think doing that will set some people at ease to be able to come to the 815 service that, that haven't been coming until now. And if wearing a mask means somebody can be comfortable enough to come to a church service, as much as I hate those things, sign me up. You know, So uh, that's what we're doing in the 815 service and continuing to reserve that for at-risk folks. Uh, otherwise, things will proceed as usual. So if we become aware that you're in proximity to someone who has a positive test and we're aware of that, we're going to let you know. But outside of that, we're going to keep on keeping on the way that we are now, barring something unexpected at this point, okay? Sound good? I hope so. And uh, so what I'd like to do is welcome you here this morning. Um, if you're a guest with us or relatively new, there's no bulletin such as we're accustomed to receiving as we come in. Those are in digital format on the Longview Point Baptist Church app, available in your Apple and Android app store. So avail yourselves of that service. It's a really handy, clean, neat, and easy-to-use app that has lots of resources that you can access from registration to giving to audio and sermon resources that are available there to you, to church calendar, etc. It's all on the app. And uh, you can find further information on the church website. We're not receiving an offering in the traditional sense of passing plates, but there are gift boxes in the back, two by the main entrance, one over in the back left corner on the wall, the gift box in the wall that's always there, and then there's one position back in, uh, in your left 
back corner as well. So be aware of that. Those are adjustments that we've made over the past several weeks. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to do the best that we can to forget about all of the insanity in the world around us and to meditate on the, on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and to make much of him because he is worthy of our worship and our praise. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your goodness toward us. That goodness exhibited in the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you have laid hold of our hearts, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that though we could not in the natural man discern the things of the Spirit, you have made us born again, given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through the Son, Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Thank you for your goodness. We ask that you'd receive these songs of praise, that you would nourish the souls of your people through the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand and worship.
stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance.
If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse number 19. Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to look together this morning at verses 19 through 30. I'll warn you, for you note-takers and outliners, I preached through this outline in the 815 service, and I didn't like it. So I'm not making any guarantees that you're going to be happy with your bulletin outline out there, all right? I, I want you to, I, when, I, when I preach more than an outline, I want you to get the essence of the text. And the essence of the text is not always well-communicated in an outline. Next week, you're not going to remember that outline, but you may remember with a good listen, listen the essence of the text. Pre preaching and listening to preaching is like a shower. I've had thousands of them in my life, you might be glad to know. None of them were particularly memorable with the exception of a fall or two. None of them were particularly memorable. But I needed every single one of them. That's the way preaching operates. When we capture the essence of the text, it has a sanctifying, cleansing, and even nourishing effect on the soul. So listen carefully to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. If you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, let's stand together out of respect and honor for its reading. The Bible says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interest. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how, see how things go with me. I am convinced in the Lord that I... ...stressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not on, only on him, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have one grief on top of another. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice when you see him again, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. 
You may not have picked up on this because we began right here in verse 19 and read through verse number 30, but if you were reading this morning through the book of Philippians, these verses might strike you as somewhat disjointed in these four chapters of Philippians. Paul is issuing command, theological concept, followed by practical precept over and over and over again. And then we come to this section in Philippians in the middle of the book, And he identifies Timothy and Epaphroditus as messengers he intends to send to the church, messengers the church was familiar with, and then details some specifics about his travel plans moving forward. If you're familiar with the New Testament, these are the kind of things that would ordinarily come at the end of one of Paul's letters and at the end of any New Testament letter. Some identification of individuals who are an important part of that particular ministry at that particular interval of time and at times some description of what the plans were moving forward. There's a very specific reason in my estimation that this interruption exists at this place in the book of Philippians, and there are clues that suggest that this is an an accurate way of understanding what Paul's up to here in the text. Here we have a description of the ministry and the character of both Timothy and Epaphroditus at this point in the letter to the church at Philippi, Because these two men in their ministry and by their character are an example of what it looks like to count others as more important than ourselves. If you think about chapter 2 as a unit, we begin with this call to humility, that we do everything without rivalry or conceit, but in humility, considering others as more important than ourselves. And then we get the chief example, namely Jesus, who came, who's set aside the advantages of his equality with the Father, clothed himself in flesh, became obedient to the point of death on the cross, was raised in the victory of resurrection, and has been given the name above every name that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There there are some admonitions that follow after the example that Jesus establishes for us, but here we have at the end of that exhortation two earthly, two human examples of what it looks like in practical life and ministry to consider others as more important than ourselves. And if you'll think carefully about what Paul says concerning both Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are two very powerful examples of what it looks like to count others as more important than ourselves. Look at verse 19. Paul says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. Now if you've been studying the Bible for very long, you're somewhat familiar with Timothy, right? Timothy is the namesake of the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy within that little three-book section of the New Testament we refer to as the pastoral epistles. Sometimes I think people come away from 1st and 2nd Timothy with something of a negative impression of Timothy because of the way Paul is challenging and encouraging him there in 1st and 2nd Timothy. He says to them, don't be intimidated because of your youth. Rather, be an example to the flock in spite of your youth. Preach the word in season and out of season. Don't back away from the preaching of the word. And sometimes we read that as though Timothy has been discouraged or perhaps intimidated because of his youth. Perhaps Timothy has been tempted to shrink back from the high call of God to preach the word. 
I'm sure there was some degree of intimidation that came with being a pastor in the city of Ephesus for young Timothy, but there's no indication in his life that those encouragements, that those exhortations were anything more than Paul cheering on his protege in ministry, that he would continue in the work of preaching the word in season and out of season. He is Paul's protege. He is like-minded as Paul describes him here in our passage, and Paul seeks to send him back that he would bear his message to the church at Philippi and that Timothy would in turn bear the message of the Philippians back to the Apostle Paul that he might hear of their well-being as well. In verse 20, Paul says, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The literal translation here is that Timothy is like-souled. He is like me in soul. I have no one else who is like-minded, no one else who is like-souled, no one else who carries this deep and abiding burden for the church the way I do. We know of Paul's care and concern for the church at Philippi. In fact, we know of Paul's care and concern for the church in general, don't we? He loves the church. When he lists all of the hardships he's experienced in his correspondence to the Corinthian church, he spoke of being whipped, he spoke of being stoned, he spoke of being shipwrecked, he he spoke of all of the persecutions and imprisonments that he'd experienced, that he was bearing in his body, but at the end of that discussion he says, and above them all, I have the care and the concern of the church. Paul's love for the church was so heavy that it weighed upon him, even in a similar way to the persecutions and imprisonments that he'd experienced in his own life. The Apostle Paul has a deep and abiding affection specifically for the Philippian church. He had cared for them, and now they had cared for him in his hour of greatest need. And he says of Timothy, I have no one else who is like-minded, who is like-souled, who cares for the well-being of the church the way I do, none other than Timothy, and I'm sending him to you to provide for your spiritual needs. The chief characteristic of a faithful servant to King Jesus is a deep and abiding love for the church. I hate the fact that somehow we've established this false dichotomy between Jesus and his church. Brothers and sisters, the church is the body and the bride of Jesus. If you approach any reasonable man and you say to him, you know, I really like you, you're a nice fella, but I don't care much for your wife, the conversation would not end well, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't with me. Jesus has granted us the church for fellowship and encouragement. One of the fears that I have, and I'm sure many of you share, other pastors are experiencing this as well, is the concern that this pandemic time that we're in, where so many churches are unable to meet together, and even within our own body, there are those who are unable to meet under normal circumstances, that somehow our love for the church might wax cold during that season. But I pray that your experience is as my experience, that my heart has grown fonder, that my affections are deeper, that my love and desire for fellowship with the church is greater now than ever before. I have been reminded in powerful ways of how deeply and how desperately I need the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. Don't you love Jesus' church? 
And I know sometimes we get wacky and wonky, and sometimes church folks can do crazy things. Sometimes churches outright leave Jesus, but Jesus never leaves his church. And in spite of all of our warts and scars and our quirkiness, the church of Jesus Christ is the best thing this world has going. You will never be the kind of servant to Jesus that God intends you would be without a deep and abiding love for the church. And I'm not talking institutions, buildings, or budgets. I mean the people that comprise the body of Jesus Christ. You want to be a servant the way Jesus would have you to serve, love the people that Jesus loves. Paul says, I found this in Timothy. And for this reason, he's the right man for the job of ministering to the church at Philippi. In verse 20, he said again, I have no one else like-minded who will generally care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is an early indication in this paragraph that this is exactly what Paul is attempting to do here, to demonstrate through Timothy and Epaphroditus what it looks like to count the interest of others above those of self. In verse 22, the Bible says, You know his proven character because he served with me in gospel ministry like a son with a father. If you want to be an effective, capable, Christ-honoring servant to the church and to Jesus, you're going to have to be a person of proven character. In spite of his youth, Timothy was a man of proven character. Now we'll see in a moment where proven character comes from. It comes from diligently pursuing the face of Jesus in personal holiness. Over time, diligently serving the people of Jesus, serving Christ in general. You can't wave a wand and get that overnight. But it ought to be the kind of thing that you are striving to attain to in your personal life. That you become the kind of person that people simply know what to expect from. You know what I'm talking about. You, you know people, you have friends and relationships, connections, where you just know that person so well that you know what they'll do in a given circumstance. That's the kind of person that we ought to strive to be, and it's the kind of person that Timothy is described as being here in our passage. Now, there's certain aspects of ministry, certain aspects of life, where if we expect to be able to serve in those areas, we're going to have to be people of proven character. And the beautiful thing about the church, in fact, the beautiful thing about the gospel, and it's so much at odds with the cancel culture of our day, is that in Christ we are a new creation with a fresh start, with a brand new beginning. Aren't you glad for a God of second chances? And you may be here today an absolute mess who couldn't be trusted any further than we could throw you together. But today, by the gospel, by the gospel, there is the opportunity for a new beginning, a fresh start, a clean state, to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. We've been called upon as servants, and certainly Timothy is described here as a person of proven character. In verse 23, Paul says, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. Paul seems to desire to send Timothy ahead. There's an urgent and pressing need among the Philippians, 
It seems to be on some level that they would know how well he's doing. There may be something else. Those matters are left to outside discussions and there can be no certainty. In verse 25, Paul transitions away from Timothy to an even more personal example for the Philippians in a man named Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus is a lot more difficult to say than Timothy, and we know a lot less about Epaphroditus than we do Timothy. In fact, outside of verses 25 through 30, we know virtually nothing of Epaphroditus. But he has, for several years, been one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. He's behind the scenes. He's low-key. He's not out front. He's just serving Jesus. Nearly loses his life in service to Jesus. And seems, on a personal level, to desire no real notoriety for his service. Brothers and sisters, this is where it's at. To live faithfully before Jesus, to serve him, and to die in obscurity, that is success in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 25, Paul says, I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Now, we're going to see the selflessness of Epaphroditus later in our passage, where his concern, in spite of his sickness, nearly unto death, is more for the anxiety the Philippians feel for him than it is even for his own well-being. But there's some sacrifice happening in the life of the Apostle Paul here as well. In verse 25, he says, I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Think about how Epaphroditus came to Rome to minister to the needs of Paul. Paul is imprisoned. The Philippian church collects an offering, and they send it with Epaphroditus to meet Paul's needs. Now, Paul was not in the Department of Corrections in the sense that we think of prison in our day and age. When you were confined in a Roman imprisonment, unless you had someone in close proximity who would provide for your material needs, clothes and food, you would freeze or starve to death. They sent Epaphroditus with the adequate financial support to meet the needs that Paul would have for the duration of this imprisonment. It is necessary that Paul would send a note with Epaphroditus upon his return. He is leaving the assignment the Philippian church gave him. But Paul says, I want you to know that I considered setting your concerns at ease of greater need, of greater urgency than even my physical needs here in prison. I'm sending Epaphroditus back so that your nervousness might be calmed by his presence once again in your midst. And then he describes Epaphroditus this way. He says, he's my brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier. Brother's a family term. There's a kinship that we enjoy in the gospel. He's my co-worker. We are partners in the gospel. And then the metaphor that Paul chooses to describe Epaphroditus, to sum up the total of his life and ministry, he's my fellow soldier. I like military metaphors. Even in our context, we understand what it means to be a good soldier, to be dutiful, to be responsible, to be a person of discipline, a person of diligence, a person who can be counted on in the most difficult of times, a person who will run to what everyone else runs from. 
Paul says this is the kind of man that Epaphroditus is. The sum total of his description here is one of, of hard work. Epaphroditus is willing to put hand to plow and to plod forward that Jesus might be known, that people might be served, that the kingdom might be advanced. He is a hard worker. We're, we're losing a bit of this in our culture, a culture that once celebrated a good work ethic. We're losing that along with a number of other things that we are losing and will lose in the decades ahead as Christian influence seems to be dissipating in our society. But I want you to know that working hard is a Christian virtue. I want you furthermore to know that working hard is something the devil would be pleased with deforming or manipulating in one of two ways. If he can't get you to be a slacker, a sluggard and lazy, he just assume have you to make an idol of your career and to work hard under the guise of virtue while neglecting other more pressing matters in your life. This still doesn't set aside the reality that working hard is a part of who we are, but it is a call to safeguard against laziness and overwork. One of the first laws that God ever gave mankind was the law of Sabbath rest, a reminder of our humanity and the need to be still and know that he is God. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to be a faithful servant of the king, you're going to have to work hard. It doesn't come easy. Now, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we have this magnetic draw to programs as Christian folks in America is because we convince ourselves that somehow we're going to program our way to a more streamlined approach to doing what Jesus commanded 2,000 years ago that's somehow going to make it easier for us so that we don't have to work as hard as we might otherwise. There is no easy way to kingdom advancement. Put hand to plow and plod forward that the world might know that Jesus Christ is king. Work hard, work hard, work hard. In verse 26, the Bible says, since he's been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard he was sick, this is a description of Epaphroditus, he's going to send him back. In other words, Paul says, he's worried that you're worried, so I'm sending him to you so you can see that all is well. He's sick, but his concern are for those who are concerned about his illness. This is the epitome of selflessness. If you're going to be a good kingdom servant, you're going to have to make sacrifices. Sacrifices of hard work and perhaps sacrifices in other ways as well. This is precisely what it looks like to count others as more important than ourselves. When you are called upon to serve in a specific way, are your first thoughts for the comforts that you'll have to forego, the inconvenience that this might mean for you, or for the ways that you might maximize the glory of Jesus through this ministry? When there are areas where we struggle to find volunteers, in my experience, they're, they're in areas that require the greatest degree of sacrifice. I can give you some uh, let me give you a real example. In, in children's and preschool ministry, sometimes it's more difficult to find volunteers in the service of the church than it might be in other areas. 
With adults, you come in and people just sit down and they go about things in an orderly way. But working with children, and especially preschool children, is a lot like herding cats. It's kind of exhausting, frankly. And sometimes, because of their age, and the time it often takes for the seed of the gospel to mature and spring forth in their life, we don't see the immediate return on investment that we might see with older people or, or with adults in general. But I want you to know that that seed does ultimately spring, forward and spring forth into everlasting life for many of those children, and there is great value there. In fact, in the kingdom, listen, in the kingdom, we ought to focus as much on the long-term investment as we do in the short-term investment. This is one of the things that breaks my heart about not having a traditional vacation Bible school this past year. How many children come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of you were saved in a vacation Bible school? I'll guarantee you there's a dozen or more of you out there who heard the gospel in vacation Bible school. But we see that all wrong. Usually what we like to talk about on the back end are the number of children who within that five-day period made some profession of faith. The reality is we won't know for a long time the legitimacy of those professions of faith. The long-term investment is that those children have now identified with a group of people called the church. They have been exposed to the teaching of the gospel. The seed of the gospel has been sown in their heart. And it might not be that day. It may be 20, 30, 40 years later. But at some point as God conditions the soil of their heart to give life to the seed of the gospel, the miracle of the new birth happens. You won't always see immediate impact for your efforts when it comes to meaningful kingdom work. But the absence of immediate impact does not mean that the work is not urgent, even necessary at the moment. The best work that you can be involved in, what you really ought to do if you're looking to assess where am I going to serve, is where the most difficult place to serve is. Where are the greatest challenges? Where are the most inconveniences? And I'll guarantee you that it'll be in that area the most fruitful work will await you. But instead, we, we, we really want to know where it will be the easiest for us. When I became a Christian, I thought the coolest job in the church was to take up the offering. You really didn't have to do anything. We didn't even get to count it. But you just pass the plate around, and it's an out front kind of deal. That's a worldly way of seeing things, right? But in the kingdom, meaningful ministry looks a lot more like Epaphroditus than it does the kind of things that often come to our mind. Behind the scenes, low-key, faithfully serving, risking one's life, and dying in obscurity. He's a hard worker who's willing to sacrifice himself that the world would know that Jesus is king. In verse 27, Paul describes further his situation. He says, indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have one grief on top of another. For this reason, I'm eager to send him so that you may rejoice when you see him again, and I may be less anxious. Paul says, I know when he gets back to you, there's going to be a celebration. Not only if you're going to be a good and faithful servant of the king and his church, do you need to be a lover of the church? You need to love the church. But you need to conduct yourself in such a way that the church loves you. There are members in every church 
Maybe y'all are more spiritual than me and you don't see it this way, but there are members in every church who are perhaps beloved, but they're prickly. You know what I mean? Somewhere in the last decade or so, we've decided that we would include among those spiritual gifts that God has given us the ability to be bothersome and brash. Some people have the spiritual gift of being a big jerk, which is not a spiritual gift at all, right? It's just not. They're like a, a big cactus. And you want to love them and you want to get close to them, but they make it very, very difficult. They have a problem for every solution. There's something wrong with every endeavor that's taken up. Be careful that you're not that person, that you're the kind of person who is not only a lover of the church, but who is loved by the church. Essentially, what chapter 2 of Philippians is calling us to do is to be like Jesus. And I get that there was a moment in time when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers, and he took a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple court. And I know that there was a time when John the Baptist stood before the Sadducees and Pharisees and called them snakes and vipers and commanded that they bear fruit worthy of repentance lest, or before they could ever think or dream of being baptized. I got all of that. But Jesus also touched the leper. And he said, come unto me, all ye who labor, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, we ought to labor to be more like Jesus than what we often are. And there's greater value in being loving in a certain scenario, sometimes even than there is being right in the midst of an argument. That may be hard news to swallow for some. Be like Jesus. Love the church and be loved by the church in your tender care for the church. Paul says, boy, when I send Epaphroditus back, you are going to be so excited to see him. Don't be the kind of person that others dread to see coming. I was in a revival meeting at another church last year. I was going down the hall with the pastor, and we were sort of gearing up and getting ready. And all of a sudden, like in one of those movies where the hook comes from off stage, you get jerked into a room, he grabbed me and jerked me out of the hall, so-and-so is coming. Like there was a fear of, of having to engage this person with a service coming. Don't, don't, be, don't be that person. Love the church and be loved by the church. In verse 29, the Bible says, Therefore welcome him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. There's a doctrinal consideration here. We are nearing the end of Paul's life and ministry, and it seems as though the ability for Paul to operate within those miraculous gifts of healings and even resurrections is diminishing here. At the very least, these are gifts that are not at the behest of the Apostle Paul. In other words, Paul does not have the ability, it seems, to heal Epaphroditus of this sickness, nor is his healing the direct product of his faith and trust in the gospel. Things are normalizing after this uh, short season of time where God is validating the truthfulness and the power of the gospel th through these incredible gifts. 
for those in our day and age who would have you to believe that resurrections and miraculous healings and the regrowth of limbs and various other outstanding things are normal within the context of church. They're simply not familiar with Philippians 2 or not being honest about the teaching of the Bible. But more than anything else, what we learn of these last verses in Philippians chapter 2 is that serving the church, that serving Jesus in a manner consistent with what Paul has called upon us to do in the earlier parts of Philippians 2, with a burden for the bride, selfless in our service, with proven character as a hard worker, being trusted, being diligent about the work God has called us to do, being loved by the church, that to live in that way, even if an obscure life like a man named Epaphroditus is worthy of honor. Paul says when he comes to you, you grant him the honor worthy a man of his character. Now, I like to say I want to go out of here in a blaze of glory with some gusto. But what I mean by that, I'll say it often, because that's really how I want to go out, kicking and screaming for Jesus. What I mean by that is, if necessary, to die in obscurity, maybe not to make many waves by the standards of this world, but to really make a difference in eternity, to do something with the meager life that God has granted me that would be impactful, not next year or 10 years from now, but a 1,000 years from now, to take as many people with me as possible to see King Jesus in the sweet by and by. Now, that may not mean that you get to be a celebrity in the here and now, I don't, know, I don't know where the, the language of celebrity Christian ever came to be, but it's, it's, a, it's almost a contradiction in terms, right? To live a quiet life, to humbly serve King Jesus, to honor the precepts of this passage. This is what it's about, right? Hand to plow, head down, not looking for notoriety, but desiring to serve Jesus, even in obscurity, even if it means foregoing our life. Now, Think of where we've come from. This kind of service is predicated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of Philippians 2. This is not the way the world would coach you to serve. This is not the kind of lifestyle the world would say is successful. This is, this is not what your elementary, high school, and college educations are preparing you to be. You're thinking in terms of achievement, promotions, success, attaining certain material things. Even within my own children, within our home, as my boys talk about what they want to do or be, I'm often concerned that they're thinking more in terms of worldly acclaim or worldly achievement than they are in terms of kingdom impact. Want to graduate here, graduate here, do this, do this, do this, move up the social ladder, have this. I have a 15-year-old, so most of it revolves around what kind of car we're going to have well into the future. And all those things are necessary realities of life in the here and now. But they are way, way big time secondary to living a life that's worthy of, of, of honor before King Jesus. Apart from the power of the gospel, you cannot be this kind of servant. A apart 
from the power of what Jesus has done for us, understand that the new birth means that we are made new. We are made again. We are born again. We are regenerated. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Apart from Jesus, you are dead. And you do not have the capacity to be what this passage has described in either Timothy or Epaphroditus. You are, you are bent on evil. But because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the gift of faith the Father has granted, because the Spirit of God abides within us, it is within our ability as believers to honor every precept set before us in this passage. That we would be people of proven character, diligent about the work that God has called us to, earnest in our desires to serve King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what do you want today? One of the most deadly misunderstandings, one of the most deadly concepts to make its way into the church culture in the last 30, 40, 50 years is this consumer mentality that says we come here to get something and then to go home feeling better than we did before we got here. Now, First of all, you did come here to get something. You come here to get the, the public praise of Jesus with the people of God and the proclamation of his word. You won't get that anywhere else. That's what you come to get. But getting is not the only reason that we come here. We come here to be equipped that we might give what God has called upon us to give. We are not consumers in the church. We are servants of the king. We merely assemble together that love and good works would be stirred up in our heart that we might be renewed and revived and refreshed and readied for the work that God has called us to in the week that lies ahead. That's who we are. This whole idea of just watching from the sidelines is not just wrong-headed. It's not Christian. It's not Christian. So this morning, in a congregation made up at least in part of some who could not ready, readily answer the question, how or where are you serving? I'd ask you this morning, as we prepare for an invitation and time of commitment, to just stay where you are, to hunker down, and to pray fervently, and ask God where he'd have you to serve. Maybe even be so bold as to ask God where the most difficult, the most inconvenient, perhaps the place that would require the greatest degree of sacrifice, and then pray to give you the courage and the gifts to go and serve in that specific area. I want to be careful that I don't give the impression that service is limited to volunteer positions within the context of our church campus. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're this little bitty spot in all the earth. There's eight billion people out there who need to know that Jesus is king. Maybe your spot's on the other side of the planet. Maybe it's across town. Who knows what God's apt to do within this body this morning. But I can tell you this, without question, if you're here this morning and you have trusted Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of your life, it is incumbent upon you to see to it that the world knows that he is king and to be in service to the bride and his, and his name for the rest of your days. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that you take this simple and straightforward passage 
and perhaps a, a broken and less than optimally effective presentation and use it to call men and women and boys and girls into the service of the King. I pray, God, that if, if there's a single soul here, and everything would suggest there are, who doesn't know you, God, maybe they've believed as the demons believe, but there's never been a moment in time in their life, that milestone moment when they made a faith commitment to turn away from their sin and to turn to you for grace and mercy. God, would you save them this morning? God, would they, would they know with absolute certainty that Jesus clothed himself in flesh, came and dwelt in our midst, that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sin, rose again on the third day, that by faith in him, we too might have resurrection. God, grant it so. Lord, Lord I, I pray, I pray that we would consider in these next moments the preciousness of the blood of Jesus shed for us. Lord, that you would kindle the gospel fire in our heart that we could not but speak of what Christ has done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to stand where you are. We're going to have a time of commitment. If there's a way that I can pray for you at all, I want to encourage you to come. Come into one of these aisles and down front. We have some pastors over here who would love to counsel with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to following Jesus. Here's what I've experienced. In our culture, in Bible Belt culture, everybody believes in the existence of God. It's a rare find to find a person who will acknowledge their atheism. But the Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble. We're not talking about some superficial level of belief and acknowledgement of the historical facts of the gospel. Those, I think, are historically established. That Jesus came to earth, that he died on the cross, that he rose again the third day. We're not talking merely about affirming the reality of those historical events, but a deep and abiding faith commitment to come to Jesus with the promise of turning away from the things of this world to receive grace and mercy and forgiveness that can only be found in him. If that's you, come into one of these aisles and down front and simply say, Pastor, I want to be forgiven of my sins. And I'll make you the money back guarantee. We'll do everything we can to show you what the Bible says about being a follower of Jesus, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That was... That was a joke on the money-back guarantee part, right? So no fee, there's no charge, no, no turnstile at the front, nothing like that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and this is the place God's called you to serve. We'd love to have you as a part of our faith family. Folks, when I say to you at the end of these services that my desire for us is that the Lord's will would be done here even as it is in heaven, that's a sincere request. Now, I, I would challenge you this morning. I dare you right now where you are. Just forget about singing. Ben will lead. I dare you to bow where you are and pray that God's will would be done in your life. And as he reveals his will for you, as it becomes clear through the work of his Holy Spirit, what he'd have you to do in these next moments, the only thing I'd ask of you is that you'd be bold enough to do what the Spirit of God directs you to do. Would you be so brave as to bow now and pray that way? Lord, may your will be done in me, even as it is in heaven. As you pray, wrestle with the conclusions reached as a result of that pray, prayer. 
I'll be down front if I can help in any way. Ben, would you lead us? Well, I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. Welcome to The Point. 
Here's what's going on. The Women's Ministry will host a new Bible study this fall. This study will be held on Wednesday evenings at 6.15 in room 215, beginning with an intro night on August 19th. Cost per person is $10. Register at longviewpoint.org or on our Longview Point mobile app. Information for an online option of this study will be available soon. Contact Vera Ann Salters for details. The Men's Discipleship Breakfast will meet again this Saturday, August 1st at 7 a.m. Men of all ages are encouraged to join us for breakfast, fellowship, and discipleship. For more information about this ministry, contact Pastor Trey. A new men's Bible study will be offered on Tuesdays beginning August 4th. All men are invited to join us Tuesdays at 6.15 a.m. or 6.30 p.m. in the student suite. Contact Dale Hare for details. We are accepting monetary donations to provide clothing and necessities for children in need from our community this fall. If you would like to contribute, donations can be made online or dropped in the Give Drop box or the contribution boxes at the exits of the sanctuary. The deadline for Dress a Child donations is today. For more information, contact Christy Douglas. The MedAdvance 2020 Conference will be held August 7th and 8th. This virtual conference is a great opportunity to learn more about the part you can play in healthcare missions. You can register online to participate individually at imb.org healthcare. Or if you are interested in attending a socially distanced viewing party, contact Pastor Jason at jason at longviewpoint.org. That's what's going on at The Point. Let's expand his kingdom across the street and around the world. All right, folks. Hey, y'all be careful out there. Um, hey, along the way, we, we're, I want you to know that we, we know, I hope you know that we know that this is all sort of flying by the seat of our pants, right? We haven't exactly done pandemics before. So if you see something that we could do differently or do better, you're not going to hurt my feelings or any of our pastors if you say, hey, pastor, what about this? Now, it's not guaranteed that we can accommodate whatever it is that you see, but we're certainly open to encouragement and counsel and direction from you guys if you see an area where we can uh, make some improvement. I want you to know that we're doing everything that we can reasonably on our end to try to ensure some degree of safety while you're here. But again, as I said earlier, there's also some risk that is assumed as we gather here. We have a new machine coming this week that sanitizes the facility in a very short period of time. So we'll be more sanitary than we've ever been before come next week. How about that? We're striving toward sanitization. We've always been about sanctification, but in this new area, sanitization is a new concern for us as your pastoral staff, okay? Hey, be safe out there, really. All jokes aside, be safe. Can't wait to see you back on the next Lord's Day. If you'll stand with me, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. God, thank you for the chance to be together. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the gospel. God, as we go, I pray that, Lord, the first people we see as we exit this campus, that we'd be uh, joyful and glad-hearted to tell them about what we've experienced under the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and what he can do for them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.